This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 26, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. At the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference, I sat down with Claudio Borio of the Bank of International Settlements, or BIS, where he serves as head of the Monetary and Economic Department. We talked about the real rate of interest, the housing market's role in monetary decisions, and the tax code's impact on all of the above. For the benefit of our listeners who don't aren't steeped in uh, monetary policy, uh, what is the real rate of interest? The real rate of interest, in fact, is something very simple. It's the nominal rate of interest minus in the inflation rate, or sometimes more in a slightly more sophisticated um, approach is the nominal rate of interest minus expected inflation, which if, for example, if you have any particular asset or whatever, describes how the value of that asset uh, in relation to goods and services increases over time. All right. So uh, how do policymakers influence the real rate of interest or do they? Well, uh, policymakers, um, it depends, what you're, depends whether you're talking about the short run and the long run. And it also depends on what kind of analytical framework you have. Uh, to understand how the two are related. Um, I think no one disagrees that in the short run, uh, the real interest rate is set uh, through a combination of central banks, market participants, and indeed the behavior of actors throughout the economy. So the central bank uh, sets the short-term rate, nominal short-term rate, and influences uh, the long-term rate through uh, its um, announcements of how the short-term rate will evolve over time, as well as through direct asset purchases. Uh, Market participants take the short rate as given, but through their purchases, through their portfolio decisions, which depend also on their views about the economy, on their risk-taking, they influence long-term interest rates as well. But these are nominal. These are all nominal. Uh, In the short run, prices are given. Uh, So that, in effect, sets also the real rate. Um, But then the question is, what what happens to the real rate over time? And there are some people that basically say, well, the real rate over time will converge to a rate which is only determined by real factors, by saving and investment drivers, but the equilibrium between how much you save and how much you invest in an economy. Uh, Other people, including myself, argue that for any reasonable policy horizon, real interest rates uh, over long periods can also be determined through monetary policy. All right. So what do we mean by the long-term neutrality of money? Again, it's the long-term neutrality. um, Let me first of all say that when economists talk about short run and long run, sometimes they do not talk about real time or calendar time, what they talk about is it's an analytical way of saying, well, in the short run, things are what they are. In the long run, they are in steady state, in equilibrium. Now, then the question is, how do you turn the short run, uh, the uh, calendar time into this analytical time? And then people basically say that it's it just takes a, a very, very long time. So. The, the view about monetary policy neutrality is very simple. It's that changes in the, in the money stock, which you, must, which you can take as given, as independent, as exogenous, in the long run, 
defined, as I mentioned earlier, would only affect prices. They will not affect real economic variables. Um, now, that used to be couched in terms of the money stock. These days, people simply say, well, it's changes in interest rates that the central bank sets that in the short run may affect economic activity, but in the long run uh, will not affect any real variables and just prices. When monetary authorities take action, some prices change more quickly than others as, the, as this, these decisions sort of radiate out through the economy. Where do we see real effects based on the transmission mechanisms that monetary authorities can use? If prices were all completely flexible all the time, they would adjust immediately to any changes in monetary policy, so real variables would not be affected. But if prices are changed at different speeds and to a different degree, which they do, then you're also affecting real variables in, in the short run. Now, that's one way of thinking about it. Another, and that basically just looks at prices. Another way of thinking about it is to say, well, central banks really, they don't have much control over the money supply and so on, which is basically determined by economic activity. What they really do is to set interest rates, as we said before. And clearly, it's quite intuitive to say that changes in interest rates will affect different sectors differently. So for example, the real estate sector is very sensitive to uh, interest rates, but where on the other hand, other sectors are, are less affected. So by uh, affecting different sectors in different ways, you're also going to be affecting economic activity in different ways. Does that privilege some sectors over the over others? Well, as I as I mentioned earlier, there is no question that uh, re the real estate sector uh, is affected much more by uh, monetary policy than other sectors. Again, the question is for how long and how. For example, some work that we have done suggests that. Um, when you have strong economic expansions that result from very low interest rates, the real estate sector grows a lot, but actually grows too much and it absorbs too many resources. And then when this expansion comes to an end, the opposite happens. Then you have to transfer resources from the real estate sector to other sectors. And that transfer is very difficult to effect which also might mean that your output suffers and your productivity suffers. Is that is that why uh, the housing market is just such a such a key variable for people who are monitoring? Uh, That's one monetary reason. policy. That's one reason. Probably the simplest reason, which is related to what I just said, is that uh, because it is so sensitive to interest rates, and being sensitive to interest rates means that the amount of borrowing uh, changes a lot. Um, when you have an expansion, both uh, borrowing goes up, asset prices go, uh, go up, partly because there is more borrowing, it, it's easier to borrow. When asset prices go, uh, go up, then the value of collateral goes up, which means that credit will increase further. So you have this sort of um, self-reinforcing uh, mechanism through which higher credit and higher asset prices reinforce each other. At some point, this process goes too far and then it has to come down. But when, then when it comes down, people are stuck with the amount of debt that they had before. And this debt overhang is very, has very serious implications for economic activity and also for the banks because they make losses. The way we structure our tax code would seem to have a very real impact on people's uh, decision to borrow. Yeah. Um, does that have substantial long-term effects? I mean, and it, like we talk about, it definitely, about, you talk it definitely about, has. I you mean, talk about the long-term neutrality of money, but yeah. if you have this uh, substantial underlying policy regime, yeah, I would say that uh, you know, 
this this concept of uh, money neutrality in the long run um as i said it is purely an analytical concept in real life from what i have seen it doesn't quite hold and we have argued in a number of empirical papers that that is indeed not the case and you you mentioned the tax code tax codes in general favor uh debt over equity and as a result of that, they tend to support or, if you like, add fuel to some of these mechanisms and these processes that I mentioned earlier. Like the housing market yeah, in particular. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So if uh, the long-run neutrality of, of money is not clearly borne out by yeah. empirical work, what what is the lesson that policymakers ought to take from that? Um, well, it, it depends what the reasons are for this non neutrality. You could actually get very, very different uh, um, views on this. The view that I take is that monetary policy has to try not just look at near-term price stability, but also has to pay attention to these financial expansions, contractions, call them financial cycles, financial booms and busts, and try to lean against the financial booms and busts so that they don't go too much out of hand. And then when the when the bust occurs, they have to pay attention to the fact that keeping interest rates low for very, very long is going to have some uh, collateral, create some collateral damage for the economy. Some other people would say, well, if monetary policy generates um, uh, a contraction in economic activity, the prolonged contraction in this economic activity will mean that uh, people lose their skills and so on and so forth, and as a result, output is permanently affected. But those people might argue that monetary policy has to be looser <laughs> at that time. I am of the view that prevention is better than cure, and since prevention is better than cure, you have to pay a lot of attention to what happens on the way up and not just what happens on the way down. That is during the boom and not just during the bust. The incentives would seem to run the opposite direction. Yes, they do. In terms of like, why pay attention to I know important but this variables? Is, uh, if I if I may say um, uh, in a slightly different way, um, now the way that our macro models work these days basically assume that the economy is affected by certain exogenous independent shocks, and then the economy goes back to equilibrium. So if you are in a boom, that's a positive shock. If you are in a bust, that's a negative shock. But uh, this is a very different notion from the notion that is implicit in what I just told you, which basically says the boom generates the bust. So what we, the bust is a consequence of what precede, uh, precedes it. Now, if you take my view, which is that one, uh, then you will have to do something during the boom in order to prevent the bust. If you take the other view, well, it doesn't matter what you do in the boom because the bust will occur anyway, and because there's going to be a productivity shock that comes from nowhere, or people all, all of a sudden decide to save more, and that's gonna bring the economy down. This is all in the shocks. Uh, another way of putting it is that people that believe in the shock view of the world would say that risk is low during booms and high during busts. But if you take my view of the world, which is an old view of the world, you would say that risk builds up in a boom and materializes in a recession. And so this is very different. It has a very different way of thinking about what the policy prescriptions are. One focuses on the boom, the other tends to focus on, on the bust. So what is your view of NGDP targeting? The idea of the, the punch bowl sort of naturally going away during a boom. I think that, uh, that it has its merits. Um, but I think that if you believe that the re main reason why economies get into trouble these days 
is because of financial aspects. Although, um, although uh, nominal income targeting can help in that direction, it's better to focus on the problem directly, which is therefore to try and constrain the boom. You can constrain it partly through monetary policy, you can constrain it through regulation and supervision, you can constrain it through fiscal policy that fully understands what the implications of the boom are, not just for economic activity, but for the way that the fiscal deficit looks like, because these financial booms tend to flatter the fiscal account, so they don't realize how weak they are. Claudio Borio heads the Monetary and Economic Department at the BIS. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference. You can rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>